0: the counter in the fellowship room, it's already filled of the four, so if you like some farm eggs, I think i have one dozen back there on the counter to help me remember now, but there's few more dozen back there, I'll that one up here a bit later, but uh, before you leave, if you're interested, go back there and see if there's more available, and if so, take them home and enjoy. All right, Daniel chapter 2 is where we're at this morning, for the last couple of weeks we were talking about commitment, it started with Psalms chapter 37 verse 5, the verse stated, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. That was Psalms 37, verse 5. We transitioned away from the Psalms to the book of Daniel last Sunday and turned it in to Daniel chapter 1 and reviewed an account of Daniel and his three friends. The King James identifies the three friends as the children of Judah in chapter 1, verse 6. Daniel, of course, his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now we looked into chapter 1. And it found that these young men, all four of them collected together, were then given new names. Daniel was given the name of Belteshazzar. Then he also had uh, Meshach, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego given to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were given all new names. which was the first portion to get them to conform to the Babylonian system. And then the king, which would identify him today in case you forgot who he is, told them they needed to be able to perform into a particular diet. They changed from their names to a particular diet. Daniel and his three friends did not partake into the diet. They remained faithful and true and proved to be a great illustration for us of what it takes to be committed. Now recall, they did not give in to the pressure that was forced upon them to conforming to the royal system or the Babylonian way. We took all that written in the first chapter. We read the entirety of the first chapter and found then that it emphasized devotion, love, and commitment, and that we too can also be devoted, loyal, and committed by giving ourselves wholly or entirely to Jesus. Secondly, to have an unending preoccupation, even borderline of obsession with the glory of God. And thirdly, we talked about an application point to have an unswerving loyalty like these young men did to God. That was all in the past. That was last week. Today we turn to chapter 2. But today we see then another example of commitment, as will kind of be the case in several chapters pertaining to Daniel. But we move further in not just an illustration of commitment. Yes, we move now into a series on Daniel called Dissecting Daniel. It'll take us several weeks to get through it. Before we read the text, it's an interesting aspect to find out that Daniel is almost like two books in one, because it can be divided into two segments. You get chapters 1 through 6, which is talking about commitment, faithfulness, loyalty, not only by Daniel, but also of God to his people. But then you find in chapters 7 through 12 a completely different story. It changes considerably. As it gets away from the stories and things pertaining to Daniel and his friends, and talks about future things to come. It's apocalyptic, talking about end times. So within Daniel, you have two books really within one. It's divided in chapters 1 through 6 and in verses chapter 7 through 12. Again, it's going to take us several weeks to get through all of Daniel, but it's going to show us that there seems to be a repetitive theme no matter where you land in the book of Daniel. And the theme then is this, that God is in control. God is all-knowing and rules over all nations and people and rulers. God will deliver the faithful, which would be us as Christians, and will follow him. That's a theme we'll have quite often through the book of Daniel. But today, we go to chapter 2. We're not going to read all of chapter 2 today. Chapter 2 is 49 verses. We're only going to read 19 verses this morning in our first segment and first look at Daniel chapter 2. So stand with me this morning as we do to honor the reading of the Word like we do each and every week. Again, only 19 verses today in our reading. And we'll pick up more of the second chapter next week and expand upon what we learned today in Daniel chapter 2. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he is the king, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the servants your dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards in great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. For verse 7, they answered a second time and said to the king, Let the king tell the servants his dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the ch- times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter of Chaldea. The thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods. Whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they saw Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And then Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Bishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the vision of the night. Then Daniel, blessed the God of heaven. Father, Lord, we thank you for this reading today, Lord. We thank you for how we can get into the book of Daniel and what we shall learn from it. I pray today, Lord, as we see the actions again of Daniel and his friends that it's another example of commitment and loyalty, but let us also see, Lord, today, that you're just as loyal, even more loyal than we are. You're loyal and committed to us, Lord, as people, particularly as your children. So I pray to the today, Lord, that we would just glean that and from this insight from that, Lord, and just and just recognize that we're so blessed to be called the children of God. Lord, let us learn from the text today and apply, and be thankful. Thankful that you're our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier before the reading, there's much more to read and consider in the second chapter. Again, we've only read the first 19 verses of a chapter that's 49 verses in length. But we stop here because some important things have already happened that kind of begs a little bit of explanation and then also some application that shall follow. So notice first that we have to know in the storyline, we learned a little bit last week, we get more this week, about who the king is. And we mentioned, obviously, the king is none other than Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in case we missed it, it's mentioned twice. It's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1. And then now in chapter 2, it's mentioned again. But notice in comparing the two verses, chapter 1, verse 1, where it tells us the king is Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 2 verse 1 again the king still being nebuchadnezzar there seems to be among some people a small problem that maybe bears a little bit of explaining because the surface there seems to be a maybe a discrepancy as you get into the book of daniel because chapter 1 verse 1 says it's the third third year whereas chapter 2 verse 1 says it's the second year and, and it's all real within the same confines of time really within the pages so we, people ask, well, how can this be? How can it be third year in one chapter and now the subsequent chapter be the second year? How, how can this be? But the explanation may be as simple as the method and counting, meaning that within the Babylonian system, a king's year of service are counted in the way that people number their birthdays. We had three birthdays today and no one advances till their birthday until they get to that day, meaning that my birthday's also the month of May, so I'm going to turn 60. But I don't say I'm 60 until I get to that particular day. I don't, for that matter, even say I'm 59 and a half, or 59 and two-thirds, or 59 and 11 twelfths. I actually wait till that day. Kayla, quick, give me that look. I actually will turn 60 on that day. So it's like the same for kings. I mean, even though Nebuchadnezzar might have well been in his third year of service, he actually only had completed two full years. I'm going to turn 60, but I won't turn 60 until May 28th. So I'm actually 59 and some days until that day. Even though I'm in my 60th year. But the day after my birthday, I'll be in my 61st year, but I don't say i will be 61 until the following year, despite what Kayla says. Don't listen to her. But if somehow that's confusing, we can also think of it another way. That, like in our public school system, when you finish your senior year in school, you graduated 12th grade, but you've actually been in school counting kind of kindergarten for like 13, so it's it's another way of counting, and that way maybe clears up some of the confusion that exists maybe within the text between chapter 1 and chapter 2. But there's another matter besides maybe the date thing and the years that he served. Another interesting item we find in Daniel chapter 2 is in verse 4, how the men, the Chaldeans mentioned here in particular, speak Aramaic. If you like the King James Version, it doesn't even mention Aramaic. It mentions Syriac, which is really the same thing, which happens to be something that occurs also in the book of Daniel. There is a third language introduced in the book of Daniel. As we know, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the New Testament written in Greek. But a portion of Daniel is also written in Aramaic, or Syriac, if you have the King James Version. So it shouldn't actually add any confusion. We know that the majority of the people spoke Hebrew, but maybe a few of the men, the Chaldeans in particular, in the Babylonian system and world, really didn't understand all the Hebrew. So a widespread language was understood by many diverse people, and one of them happened to be Aramaic. All kinds of different people collected for the king to help serve him. But the most important thing then you get to in Daniel chapter 2 is the dream. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. Most likely everyone in this room has had dreams. But Nebuchadnezzar's dream has an interesting twist. And then he requests for it to be interpreted, which may not be unusual, but it also then he wants them to tell it what it is. But notice as Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, according to what we're going on early in the second chapter, He's troubled greatly by it. And we may ask, well, yeah, we may have some silly dreams that may be troubled, but he's really kind of seriously troubled. And, and maybe the question is why? Why would Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, it's common to have dreams, why would he be so greatly troubled by just having a particular dream? And the answer is because dreams in that day and time were considered to be messages from the pagan gods. It's the, you notice how it mentions gods in the text with a little G, and all their gods were supposed to have sent them a message in dreams. And then the astrologers then were expected to interpret them, which is what he's demanding from his people around him. I mean, usually the astrologers could give some sort of interpretation as long as they know what the dream is about. The king, someone special, like in his status, would have the dream, maybe share it with somebody. Those people would come along, the astrologers and chanters, and they would actually tell the king what it meant by what they understood and what they learned. But this time it's different. Nebuchadnezzar wants them not only to interpret which was common, because he's troubled by it, and he wants to understand what it means, but this time he wants them to tell him what he dreamt. And as you go through the text and learn from that, even into next week. We find that they cannot, and they fail miserably. And that itself then reveals a first truth of application for us this morning. And the truth is this, that without God, human efforts will fail. And the account we're learning here, that human efforts relates to the interpretation of the dream. But for the bigger picture, it can also indicate that we, as people, are powerless. Those astrologers, enchanters, are powerless to be able to interpret the dream, really, and not even have any idea about what he dreamt. We're all powerless. Human efforts without God will fail. We must have God in our lives because we ultimately are powerless. There's many examples to choose from to solidify this point. The one I was thinking about last week was the story of Gideon found in Judges chapter 6 and 7. You may know the story, but if you do, then they do not. Let me familiarize re-familiarize you with it. We find that the Lord told Gideon in chapter 7, particularly verses 2 and 4, that he gathered an army. But he also told him the army was too many men and to make the army smaller. Now, interestingly, to reduce the army, to reduce the number of men, which is collectively at 32,000 at this point, God tells Gideon, in verse 3, that any men who are trembling with fear could go home. And that happens to be 22,000 of the 32,000. So it leaves him with 10,000 men. But in verse 4, God told Gideon, your army is still too significant. It's still too large. It's still too many. So then Gideon takes the remaining 10,000 men down to the river. And then God reveals to him that only those who go down to the river and lap up the water to drink will be the ones used. And it happens to be 300. So there's 32,000 men ready for battle. And God told him as too large and reduces to 300. From 32,000 to 300. Why did God do this? It's revealed the truth in verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands. For it, Why? Because Israel will become boastful, saying, it's My own power has delivered me. He did this so that he would get the glory and the people would not think, but by their power did it be the Midianites. It is only by the power of God. That Gideon and his army of 300 could defeat the Midianites, so they would not boast, saying they did it upon their own might and power. It applies to us as well. That are busy we live a very busy modern lives, and because of that, I think at times we fail to recognize that we have no power. I mean, plenty of people, particularly politicians, mind boast, and truly think that they have power. But in the end, all things considered, they and we are powerless. We're powerless. Now, at times we may think we have power and we absolutely positively do none. I mean, think of it this way. Who in here can save themselves? Not one of us. Not one of us can save ourselves. But I mean, yes, we we have people, we admit and honestly we recognize that there are people who are trained professionally, to help us in a moment of emergency. But we need to remember ultimately who is in control of every situation in all the world and in our lives. And we need to face it then that we need Jesus. We're powerless without him. And in every aspect of life, we need to not depend upon ourselves or upon others, but only in the power of Jesus. Depend only the power of Jesus. And, and through this, and, and what we find in Daniel chapter 2, and, and this dream we're about to go back to reveal even more of, we see an application that they need God. That they someone needs, Daniel will eventually learn the interpretation of the dream and its contents, what he actually dreamed. But it's only through the power of God. So we should never depend only on our resources. That's what we can already see happen in the text. We should make certain that we are doing the will of God, and then we count on God to supply our every need. And He will. He will not fail us. He is faithful to us, He is loyal. Even when we are not, God will supply our every need because we're powerless. But getting back to the text, notice again here in verses 1 through 11. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. As we think about being powerless, we now see the typical response of people in the world. I mean, notably, Nebuchadnezzar, as the king, has demanded an unusual request. He has demanded that the people surrounding him, the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, they interpret the dream without knowing what it was about. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's men, the magicians, really, they don't know how to respond to this unusual request from Nebuchadnezzar about a dream. Again, that we'll learn eventually as we go back to chapter 2 even next week is that Daniel received, we get that a little bit at the end of the reading today, Daniel received the full meaning of the vision and explained it to him. But for now, notice how we have a typical reaction from people that are living their life without God. The God. I mean, the response of Nebuchadnezzar's advisors reveals really their worldview. They perceive, if you go back to the text and read over it again, they, they really perceive a distinct separation between their gods and the people. From the perspective, their gods, their pagan gods, stay in their own little world, not interacting with the human flesh in our world. And there's responsibility to believe of their gods to reach out to them. Note in verse 11, the astrologers even admitted that their gods do not live among them It says the thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods. Notice a little g. It is not the gods. But they think their gods can show it to them and cannot understand it without them. But they also say their gods is not dwelling in their flesh. They're not living among them. That means they're not with them. They're not living among them. So I'm thinking as I'm reading through the book of Daniel in chapter 2 when I get to verse 11 when they say no one can show it to us except the gods who dwells among the flesh. I'm thinking, no kidding. Because they don't even exist. Those little pagan gods are worthless. They don't exist truly at all. But they're actually thinking that they do and they're wanting their gods to interpret the dream for them And to tell them the meaning, but they said, but they don't even live among us. we got to wait for them to reach out to us. It reveals our second application point. Because our God, the same God that Daniel is serving, the once and only almighty, powerful, sovereign God, he is an active God with his people. He's always active in our lives. And sadly for Nebuchadnezzar in this text and the people around him, his advisors and so forth, and even really, even in people in the world today, they think that God does not live among his people. Or sadly, if they even have any inclination of God or Jesus at all, they only call upon him when they're needing something, when they're needing some sort of answer. It's like, putting a little bit of Jesus in your pocket and only leaving him there and saying, I'm going to keep you kind of tucked away kind of nicely or put you on the shelf and reach up and get you or pull you out of my pocket when I need you. That's kind of a pocket Jesus mentality. He's there in case you need him. Pulling Jesus out of your pocket is a very shallow form of religion rather than relationship. I mean, we're actually supposed to be in a relationship with Jesus. And for these astrologers, then going back to the text, we see they're in no relationship with their gods. They only think they interact with them. I mean, they only had a shallow religion with their gods. I mean, it's actually very hollow, meaning that it is empty. As a religion of convenience, if anything at all. But note that they believed their gods, their liturgy gods, Made no difference in the world unless you reach out to them. And even if they reached out to them, which they won't understand, they, they, they didn't change their conduct. They go about living like they were living, even when their little g gods do reach out to them. It makes no difference at all in their conduct. But notice that maybe today the same still applies not the little g gods, but the almighty God. That many people today. Profess to believe in God, but it's really a hollow belief, as in empty, as in a religion and not a relationship. One commentary I was reading last week called them practical atheists, people who believe in God, but it's a hollow belief. He calls them practical atheists because they believe in God, but they do not listen to God or do what he says makes no difference in their conduct. Commentary referred to them as practical atheists. They say they believe in God, but they don't listen to God or do what he says and makes no difference in the life in which they're living. How would you like to be called a practical atheist? I don't think wants that particular label attached to us. Because I could ask you a question and ask you, do you believe in God? And you say, well, yes, of course I believe in God. But do we actually listen and practice and have our lives to change what we read or what we hear and what God tells us? Or for that matter, do we truly realize that God does live among his people? And he wants to change your life. Listen, God doesn't want anything less than all of you. He wants all of you, but we often only give Him a small part of us. That's what God wants. God wants our entire soul, our entire being. He wants all of us, not just a small portion of us. I mean, He longs, He greatly desires to have a meaningful and complete relationship with each and every one of His people. That's what He wants. He wants all of us. Not a portion of us. God the Father wants all of us as his children. That's similar to proud new parents like Josh and Jessica. or, Or any new parent for that matter. Not to single them out, but we've all been, if we're mature as adults, and have had children, we know how we are with our children, especially when we have a newborn baby. When you bring your newborn baby home, You begin to love and care for the baby. You also know that you're in store for sleepless nights. And you also then recognize that you're going to work endlessly. Because you love and care for your newborn baby, or any baby that you have, you're going to work endlessly to provide nourishment and provide all the things the baby needs. I mean, it's part of your creation. I mean, actually, God created, of course. But two people are joined together to make something wonderful. A baby boy or baby girl. And so it becomes part of you. And you desire to see everything the baby needs and for the baby to succeed. So much so that you'll provide anything the baby needs and everything for it. I mean, provide all the food, the clothing, the shelter. Later, as the baby grows, it's probable that they'll need help with schooling and education, college, and tuition. And it doesn't stop there, when the baby, although fully grown as an adult, is still going to receive love and care, even when they strive to become independent, even when they tell you they know more than you do, you're still going to love and care for the baby and provide for them. Why? Well, despite the baby has grown as an adult, thinking they know more than mom and dad, and mom and dad's getting into my business is all because you become they become part of your life. The baby is grown, but it's still their baby. That's the same thing in the way it is of God. When we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we enter into that kind of relationship. It's not a religion. We enter into that kind of relationship with God. And that's to become heirs of the kingdom, children of God. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons or daughters of God through faith. Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We are heirs of the kingdom. We've been adopted as the children of God. I'm not sure how that makes you feel, but I'm glad that I have a loving parent, God the Father, looking out for me, providing for me daily blessings and all the provisions I need. Yeah, he provides discipline too. I don't always like the discipline. But I understand because I get out of line and into the ditch that God provides the discipline to put me back on the path I truly need. And I recognize it's only because he loves me. And then I recognize how blessed I truly am because he loves me so much. It's the same thing a loving parent does for their children as God the Father does for each of us. He is active in our life. He's not distinctly separated from anything that we have, like happens to be the case of these pagan gods with the astrologers and Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian world. So let us do briefly a recap in our text today, we see a dream was given to a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, in which he becomes very alarmed, and he demands then to be interpreted. All the kings, astrologers, magicians, and enchanters gathered around him fail to have any capacity to interpret the dream. And then the king gets upset, gets angry, gets furious. In verse 13, he orders for all of them to be executed, to be slain. However, then, we recognize, we get closer to verse 16, that Daniel then goes to the king and convinces the king to give him some time to consider the dream. Verse 17 enlightens to pick up the story once more. Notice the actions of Daniel. After he grants, the king has granted him permission of some time to interpret and time to understand, what did Daniel do? Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael the Azariah against his companions. He told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Interpret what that means. What Daniel is doing, he, he went to the king, convinced the king to give him some time to maybe understand it. Daniel recognizes it's not by anything that he has the capacity to do. It's only going through the power of God that he'll have any understanding of what the dream was and what it means. But in the time that he's considering all this and, and has some time now to work it out, he goes and finds his three trusted, loyal friends who happen to be just as committed and loyal to God. And verse 18 says they seek mercy from God. I interpret that as. They're going on their knees to prayer. They're getting on their knees and praying for God, who they recognize has the power to tell them what the interpret, I mean, to what the dream means. They go and they pray at this particular moment for God to intervene because they know God is active in their life and God will certainly supply their needs. And we find out later that God truly does. But notice in verse 19 that we learned the secret to the dream was given to Daniel in a night vision. And then they just did they just go off and say, OK, here's what it means to Nebuchadnezzar. No, he immediately thanked God for bestowing upon him the content of the dream. We know when God's been gracious to us, when we receive some sort of special blessing, or just any day, which really is a blessing in itself, do we get our knees and thank God for the day? Or we just go about our business, assuming everything will fall in place. We need each and every day to thank God for every blessing, every provision, because he truly is a source of every blessing that we have in our life. We know he's active in our life, he provides for us all the things that we need because here we are the children of God and we are heirs to the kingdom. And we rightfully, on each and every day, just receive the day as a blessing. When your feet hit the floor, you drink the first cup of coffee, it's all a blessing. Thank God for the moment. Because he just provided that for you. And why did God provide it for you? Because we ultimately are powerless. We have no power. We have blessings from God. And because of blessings from God, we should be thankful. And Daniel and his friends. Daniel in particular will go forward to share the meaning of the dream as we get into next week's story. But notice they thank God for what he has done for them. A couple of applications emerge from a small portion of the text that we read today. The applications for us today is first of all that without God, human efforts will fail after we mentioning more powerless. The people in the chapters around, God, around Nebuchadnezzar, completely powerless. We too, even though we're blessed, we're still powerless. Without God, human efforts will fail. And secondly, as we mentioned, our God is an active God with his people. How many times have you been in a situation and you called upon God to help you and he's been there for you? God never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He's always active with his people. And ultimately then, as we put all this aside and look forward to next week, we see yet then another example of commitment, loyalty, love, and devotion from four young men. They're really just teenagers. Four dedicated young men to God and their loyalty, their faithfulness, and their commitment. We see that emerge once again. But we also see how God is just as faithful and just committed and it's just a loyalty to his, to his people. We see that also emerge from this particular chapter in just 19 verses. And there's so much more for us to get to, as it is in the rest of the chapter, and also really through the whole book of Daniel. So we'll go back then to end for today with the theme of Daniel, that God is in control. God is all-knowing and rules over all nations, people, and rulers. And God will certainly deliver the faithful who follow him. We'll see more of that as we get into the story next week and finish up two. But as we get ready to end today, ask yourself this moment right now. Are you trying to control your own life, pushing God aside? Or are you allowing God to control? We mentioned a couple of weeks ago how we seem to always want to be driving the bus, never want to be a passenger. It's time for all of us to recognize that we truly are passengers. That we're powerless. And that God is in control of all things happening. Relinquish control of your life to God. And be blessed. Father, we thank you for the beginning of a series of Daniel, Lord, and how we can be able to learn from it and also apply it. I thank you for today's lesson, Lord, for today's particular message. reminds us that we need you. Because we're powerless in our own efforts, Lord. We recognize how it's already failed at different times and how it will fail without you. And how you truly are active in your presence is nearest at all times. We thank you for what lessons we can learn from this particular message today in the first portion of Daniel. But Lord, I want to just pray today for anybody here this morning who does not truly recognize that you are an active God. And for anybody who is trying to control their own life, anybody that does not recognize that our efforts as humans will fail and that we need you. We need you, God. We truly need you. And for somebody here today, Lord, that thinks they do not need you, I pray you put it on their heart today to recognize they do. They're nothing without you. So Lord, today we thank you for how this message just kind of tells us that we need you. Let us today reach out to you. We know you'll be there for us. Thank you, God, for always being there for us. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.